So we're starting at verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in all they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Morning, everyone. Well, I'd say year six to eight head out, but I think uh, they've beat me to it. Come to our second instalment in our series on the letter of James. If you'd like to uh, look along in your Bible, I encourage that, but I will put the words of Scripture on the screen as well. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks. You speak to us for our good, to give us all that we need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Please... Help us lay aside any distractions or hindrances that will get in the way of us uh, uh, hearing your word, and especially this morning, seeking to put it into practice. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1955, two psychologists, one named Joseph Luft, the other named Harrington Ingham, came up with a very helpful little tool for people to better understand their relationships with themselves and other people. Uh, It's a quadrant like that that identifies four basic areas of knowledge and the way they named it was really cool. They just chose the first bit of each of their first names, Joe and Harry, and they called it the Johari window. And it's a simple thing to understand and it makes pretty good logical sense. Here's the window. In the first category, there are things that we know about ourselves and that everybody else knows also. I love playing guitar. I have a slightly juvenile, mildly sadistic sense of humour. If you've known me for more than five minutes, you'll probably know that about me too. I know that about me, and everybody else knows that about me also. That first category, they call it the arena. It's out there for everyone. In the second category, there are things that we know about ourselves, but nobody else knows. Uh, there's in one particular route that I drive uh, during the week, there's an extraordinarily immaculate lawn, of which there are a number in Harrington Park, but this one, you know, takes the cake. And uh, there's a sign on that lawn that says, um, please keep off the grass. 
And every time I drive past it, it's just at the right angle and corner, which will make it so easy just to do a little burnout on the grass and rip it up as I go past. And you all now know that I secretly think about doing that. Now, the problem is, now that I've told you that, it's now moved from this window. But before I told you, I knew it, but nobody else knew it. That's the second category. In the third category, there's stuff we don't know or recognise about ourselves and no one else knows. I mean, God knows, obviously. He knows everything, but he doesn't, that doesn't count in this particular uh, example. There are a number of hairs on my head, but I don't know what that number is, and you don't know what that number is. I don't know. You don't know. We're both in the dark. There are things about me that I haven't worked out, and they're not obvious, so you haven't worked them out either. But the fourth category is the scary one. This is where you get a scary thought. There are things we simply don't know about ourselves, but everybody else knows it. And by definition, you're incapable of working it out for yourself, no matter how much thought you give to it. There's a funny meme I saw during the rounds a while back. It reads, tomorrow is slap your annoying co-worker day. If you're not, if you're not sure who that is, I'd call in sick. <laughs> It's very clever because it plays on the notion that we all recognise, at least in theory, that there are things that we don't realise about ourselves that other people are likely to see. Now, that's scary enough for me to, to realise that's probably a reality and is for everyone. But this morning it gets more scary. What if the stuff in that blind box that I've got that everybody else knows but I don't know. What if the stuff there is actually to do with my relationship with God, maybe even my salvation? And what if the reason it's unknown to me is because of my own deliberate self-deception, my own false awareness? What if I'm convinced I'm doing okay with God when in reality everyone else, God included, knows that I'm not? In this part of James's letter we're learning from today, he speaks of the issue of spiritual self-deception, of people who consider themselves having proper religion when in fact they do not. And it can even be shown. Other people can see it. In verse 22, there are people who listen to God's word yet still notice deceive themselves. Verse 26, there are people who consider themselves have true religion yet have in fact deceived themselves. Verse 24, there are people whose spiritual condition is likened to having looked in a mirror but immediately forgetting what they look like. Religious self-deception is the thing, the problem being addressed in this part of James's letter which we're looking at this morning. So it's especially important that you and I uh, pay careful attention to James's teaching today because not only does he explain religious self-deception, but thankfully, and much more importantly, he also gives us the antidote. He gives us the tool to shrink that blind spot box, especially if it's a, a blind spot box that has a lot to do with God in it. And in varying degrees, this will apply to every one of us directly here this morning. So, to get our bearings, uh, much of what James says in this letter uh, reminds us that the Christian life is just as much about new birth as it is about spiritual growth. Uh, 
verse 18, just before our section, we, we finished with this last week, James reminds his audience that he, that is God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, I could give a whole sermon just on this first, but I'm not, but that's an indication that please ask me afterwards and I'll talk to you. Um, the word of truth is, of course, the good news of Jesus the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, by his death to pay for all our sin and his resurrection by which he's shown to be God's chosen ruler, he has made it possible for sinful people, unworthy people like you and I, to have a completely new start with God, to be spiritually reborn as his children rather than being his natural enemies, right? We're born again. You can't be a Christian if you're not born again. To be born again is to be a Christian. But the evidence for such rebirth having taken place is, well, there's lots. But one obvious thing is that, well, what happens with babies? They tend to, go, to, to grow and get big, bigger. They, they eat and poo and they expand. So if you've truly been reborn by the gospel, then, of course, you're going to get spiritually bigger. You're going to grow as one of God's children, becoming increasingly obedient to him, learning how to live as one of his children. So in verse 20, James assumes that there is, in an ongoing sense, the need for producing righteousness that God desires. He just assumes that that's something that's going to happen. Uh, and what's a really good way of doing that? What's a really good area in which we can produce righteousness? Well, there's lots, but a really obvious one for a born-again person has to do with their speaking. Verse 19. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, in this context, to be slow to speak and quick to listen, I think means to be more considerate of others than you are of yourself. You see, there's nothing wrong with being a person who talks a lot. Uh, my own wife will tell you that she's firmly on the extrovert end of the spectrum. And like a lot of people, she will form thoughts through speaking. Whether you talk lots or little is not the issue. It's whether or not you're generally, humbly more considerate of others than of yourself, which will be shown forth in your conversation. You see, I know this because to be quick to listen is not actually literally possible. The sound waves hit your ears at whatever time they hit your ears, right? It's clearly got to be an expression. The same thing with being slow to speak. It's to consider the needs, the, 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 the needs, the wants of others more than your own. See, if in a conversation you find yourself mostly thinking, I, I just can't wait to get in and say what I want to say, and that kind of is, is always there, uh, well, maybe you've, that's an area where you've got some Christian growing to do. In a related area, and it is very much related, we're also to be considerate and calculated when it comes to anger. Now, it doesn't say don't ever get angry. As a matter of fact, there is a place for righteous indignation in the Bible. As a matter of fact, there's a problem with us if we don't get angry at some things. But the mature Christian will arrive there slowly. Uh, this is actually a common problem for us in our church, in our culture. 
Uh, it is so often the case that people get their noses out of joint without first hearing all the information. We should be faster, quick to ask for clarifying information, quick to listen in that sense, uh, before we sling the mud. Now, I've been on both sides of this and neither of them are, are, are good. The next time you find yourself starting to feel angry at something, well, remain self-controlled. That's a fruit you should cultivate anyway. Fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And ask questions before you give expression to that anger. You may still need to be rightly angry, but arrive there slowly. Be slow to the anger. To put it in a simple and memorable way, and because I've been doing youth ministry for ages, to use a meme, uh, and it's quite memorable, really. Get clarity before you get angry. There you go. There's immediate little application you can take already. Get clarity before you get angry. Now, of course, speaking and listening are one area, whereas Christians will want to be producing the righteousness that God desires. But broadly speaking, the general principle that underlies our Christian growth is fighting against our internal sinful desires by humbly recognising the gospel message. And that's where James goes next. So he gives you the specific, but he's also got the broad on view. So verse 21, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now, the, the prevalent evil isn't the evil of the, word, the, the world. It's the, the indwelling evil, because the word indwells you, and it's, that's like fighting against the other thing, which is the, the evil. We have residual sinful desires at work within us, but we also have the gospel word planted in us. Humbly accepting the word means preferring to please God, to produce the righteousness that he desires, rather than to please our sinful selves, which in the end never really works that well anyway. To keep coming back to God's word and to the gospel, which of course is at the heart of God's word, is to keep growing in righteousness. How do you grow as a Christian? Well, the same way you started. You keep coming back to the gospel, to the word of God. But it's at this point where the danger of deception can kick in. And James knows it, so he's going to tell us about it. Having exhorted us to grow as newborns in the Lord, as, as people of the Lord, James now points out one of the greatest dangers both in his time and in ours. That is the danger of self-deception when it comes to actual godliness. Verse 22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. After seeing yourself in the mirror, especially at the time this was written where you wouldn't see yourself in a mirror all too often, after looking at yourself in the mirror, you can't help but at least have a general idea of what you look like. So in order to immediately forget, it's actually got to involve some level of deliberateness. I don't like that, so I'm just going to ignore it, kind of deliberateness. It's hard to obey, so I'll just be satisfied with having heard. Now, if someone does that for long enough, it will move from being deliberate to being automatic and subconscious. You can actually get to the point where you're 
whole life is about living exactly how you want to, your life, your way, in accordance with your own worldly desires, whilst hearing and nodding along to God's word every week at church in a growth group. And I know that to be true because I recognise that possibility in myself and that tendency in myself, as I'm sure we all do. Maybe you're someone here this morning and you've actually gone very far in this direction. No one else would know it. You might not even be aware, but it could be you. You maybe have a sense deep down that it's you and you don't want to admit that it's true. You've actually been living for yourself whilst pretending to live for Jesus. It's so easy to be a Sunday Christian and an alcoholic. It's so easy to be a Sunday Christian and a porn addict. It's so easy to be a Sunday Christian and a violent person, a gossiping, slanderous, incessantly complaining person. It's easy to be a Sunday Christian without ever giving any thought towards evangelism. It's easy to be a Sunday Christian and live as if the house, the car, the overseas holidays and the gadgets are really the important things in life. It's easy to be a Sunday Christian just as much when you're simmering with anger and envy that you don't have the house and the car and the overseas holiday and the gadgets. I know of a famous itinerant preacher who spoke faithfully and prayed earnestly at huge conferences all over the world before he abandoned his wife and children to live with his boyfriend who he'd long been cultivating a relationship with. He was even asked about how you did that and he said it was easy, just compartmentalise. Easy. It's even possible to sit here right now, think to yourself and firmly believe that, well, such spiritual deception could never apply to me. Whilst it would affect other people, it's not something I'd ever be susceptible to. To listen to the word of God and give it a good nod and enthusiastic approval while subconsciously rejecting what it says is both easy and common enough that the Bible has to address it. Thankfully, there's a way out, a real way out, and it works. There is a freedom available to us from our real or our potential religious self-deception. And it doesn't come, like the world says, by looking deeply and more introspectively at yourself. That's rubbish. It comes from carefully and intently looking into the gospel. That same old thing that we bang on about week after week, but that's so easy to hear and keep at surface level without intently looking into it. Verse 25, but... In contrast, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now, the word perfect here has the sense, not of flawless, although it is, but a sense of completeness. It's perfected, it's reached its goal. See, it's not the Old Testament law which was always looking forward to fulfilment. It wasn't yet complete. What's the thing that fulfills the Old Testament law? Well, it's the gospel, the perfect law, if you like. The gospel is the final revelation of God that gives freedom from sin. 
James is speaking about the gospel. It is looking intently at the gospel again and again that destroys, diminishes the religious self-deception and it results in the righteousness that God desires. Careful, ongoing consideration of the gospel, which of course is the, the word implanted in us, is the antidote to religious self-deception. In 1866, a lady named uh, Catherine Hankey, actually I think her full name was Arabella Catherine Hankey, but she went by Catherine Hankey, she understood this really well. She wrote an absolutely brilliant hymn. And I wonder if people know here, some of the older people might know it, it's called um, Tell Me the Old, Old Story. Anyone ever heard of this hymn before? Oh, look. Let me read you a couple of lines. you see how much she gets this idea. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the story softly with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always, if you would really be in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. And when the Lord's bright glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story Christ Jesus makes thee whole. It is the gospel message that has the power to cut to the heart to get through the defences, the self-deception, to actually result in Christian growth and obedience. So here's a really obvious question. What's the gospel message? What's the gospel? Someone asked you that, what would you say? What's the gospel? You kind of know it, but maybe you've never thought to actually put it into a sort of a coherent uh, sentence or explanation or summary. Uh, Well, there's lots going around. Here's one that I like. It's not on the screen because I expect people to remember it because we remember three things, right? The gospel is a message about an event that results in a relationship. You got that? Here's the gospel, a message about an event that results in a relationship. What's the message? The more the message comes from God. Of all the messages we get, this one comes from God. This is really important. It's about an event. Jesus, his death and resurrection, his death to pay for our sins, his rising to new life to show that God says, you are the king that I've appointed over the whole world. And it results in a relationship for every single person. They will have a relationship with God. All people everywhere will bow before Jesus one day. Some will do it willingly. Others will do it in horror and unwillingly. The gospel, there you go. It's a message about an event that results in a relationship. But how is it that such a message really cuts through religious self-deception and gives you the means to to want to grow in your obedience to God? Well, let's look intently into this gospel for a minute. Let's think precisely about how it challenges and affects us and what it means. God is completely holy and completely just and completely righteous without any compromise whatsoever in his assessment of each and every one of you and of me. That God would allow his one and only perfectly beloved son to suffer the piercing of the nails, 
from the torture of the Roman cross to execution. And he says that that event was substitutionary. What he suffered was actually done in our place. God's judgment of me and his perfect assessment of you is that we deserve that. You might not think that's a good assessment, but you're not God. God is God, and he is a perfect, completely, thoroughly just judge. How do I naturally stand in my relationship with God? Easy, as deserving of his forsakenness and those nails. Now, I could spend half an hour, if I was a really good orator, and make you feel the weight of your sin. But one, I'm not that good an orator, and two, I don't have half an hour. But I don't really need to. That's what the Bible teaches. The perfect uh, judgment for you and for me is there on the cross. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. But God is loving and merciful. He did not spare his one and only son. Jesus took that judgment that I'm liable to, that you're liable to, so that I would not have to. They're the depths from which he has saved me. And not only that, restore me into a perfect relationship with him that I might enjoy him both now and forever. There's a bit of intent looking into the gospel. How hard should it now be for me to say, God, I'm going to continue to live in disobedience to you? You can't. See how I've intently looked upon this perfect law and realised that it actually fights so brutally against my sinful tendencies and my desires. But as if the gospel wasn't already enough to inspire complete, grateful, lifelong obedience for my privilege as being a child of God, Jesus even gives us more reason. That's why James probably doesn't use the term gospel. He uses word of God. He goes more broad. Question, put up your hand if you know that Jesus says, love your enemies. Who's, who knows that Jesus says, love your enemies? You knew that already, right? Probably everyone. Put up your hands if you know the reason he gave to love your enemies. Some people are going to be brave. I won't ask you, I'll tell you. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Because you get a reward is why you love your enemies. The Bible says it. Even James chapter 1. Blessed is he who stands a test, overcomes a trial. Why? You receive the reward. It doesn't automatically come to us straight away that this God, this God who's given us the gospel that already is a million times the motivation we need to live a righteous life has also, on the other side, given us the reward for living righteously as well. There is no excuse for not taking God's word deadly seriously and saying, I want to live in obedience to you and your will will be done in my life, not mine. Now, having made the big point that intently, continuously looking into God's saving word is what we need, then James reinforces his point by making a really clear black-white distinction. This is wonderful for people like me who just like it really simple, black and white, right? Hardcore this way, hardcore that way. That's what he does. Between genuine growth and false godliness. In a word, you will know someone has been born again by the ongoing righteousness they produce. We start with the negative, verse 26. 
Those who, note, consider themselves religious, that is, living in a way appropriate to God, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Now, interestingly, James is going to return to this later on in his letter. We're going to hear about this in a few weeks' time, uh, the theme of the, the tongue. And he's actually going to argue that ultimately no one can tame the tongue. We can't ever gain complete control of what words come out of our mouths this side of heaven. But if we recognise that, then out of a genuine desire to produce the righteousness God wants, we'll at least keep a tight rein on the tongue. We'll be striving to be considerate of others more than ourselves, which will be shown forth in our conversation amongst other things, in our communication. Someone who doesn't even do that is self-deceived and therefore in great danger. We can recognise it and we can pray that God opens their eyes so they recognise it. Get them out of that, that fourth box. So what's the positive then? Well, obviously it has, will have to be someone who's careful with their words and really consider of others. He's obviously a genuinely maturing Christian, but that's not what James says. James is not talking about one particular area of Christian growth, though he can use one and it's right. He's chosen a couple of big areas to make a point, to highlight the underlying principle that genuine godliness is to be seen in action. That, that's the principle. So in the final verse here, he speaks about how our actions can demonstrate that we love the things that God loves. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, he could have just gone and used the same example to keep a tight rate on their tongue, but he shows us that he's actually, you know, thinking of the broad principle. Uh, if you're born again, you're going to grow and it's going to be obvious. You're going to be living in such a way that the things you know God loves, and remember God's a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widow, right? You're going to love the things that God loves and it's going to make you stand out. You're going to be different to the world. Uh, that's why a good litmus test is just to ask yourself how different do you look compared to the rest of the world. I mean, what is it that the pagans run after? The, the clothes, the food, the fashion? Eh, if your life looks the same as theirs, that's, that's problematic. That, that's a good litmus test as well. Living in accordance with the implanted word can't help but produce tangible, real life action. That's, that's reality. Living in accordance with the, the implanted word can't help but make you feel like, gosh, I'm annoyed that I've succumbed to this worldliness. I'm, I'm annoyed that I spoke in the way that I did then. I, I want to grow. I want, I want to get better. I want to improve at the way that I, that I live. I want to produce the righteousness God desires. Now, it so happens that the particular example he used here is really good. It's uh, not surprising that there are heaps of orphanages in the world are run by Christians, that a lot of people... Uh, in their mourning or their, their loss of a spouse, find a good solace and, and Christian community. Uh, it's not surprising that God so gifts and gives some members of his congregations the, the ability to, to say adopt kids or, or, or foster kids, and we've got a lot of that here. That's wonderful. Um, but there are many other things that he could have chosen. This is not a, like a you know, specific list. So by way of implication... Uh, Fighting gospel complacency should be part and parcel of what happens at church. What I mean by that is, it's so easy to get to the point where you think, oh, we're going to hear about Jesus again. You know, I heard of this fellow that had a friend that had been praying would come to church for ages. The friend came along, 
And he asked him afterwards, what do you think? And he goes, it's all right, but gee, they kept talking about Jesus a lot. Well, yeah, they did. And it's so easy uh, to, to get to the point where you think, oh, I'm going to have to hear this again. I know it, I'm familiar with it. I'm bored of it. You've got to fight against that. Um, the Apostle Paul assures you that it's right to keep hearing the gospel day in, day out. This isn't made up by ministers or whatever. This is right. Check out Titus chapter 3. At one point, here's Paul's gospel, by the way. At one point, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice, envy, being hated, hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generally through Jesus Christ our Saviour so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I'm not going to preach a sermon on that. I'll be here for another hour. There's a gospel, right? There's a wonderful explanation of the gospel. What does he then say? Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things, says Paul to Titus. You should expect to hear the gospel again and again. You should expect to hear it stressed at church because God expects you to need to hear it again and again. You need to hear the old, old story. Don't ever get to the point where you think, I've heard enough about the good news of Jesus. That's a problem if you get there. Tell me the old, old story again and again. And of course, the last one is, well, tighten the reins. Just think about how you speak and communicate. Don't say, I need to speak less. Now, what's this person need? How, how does my speech actually help them? It's not just me jumping in to say what I want to say. I actually want to think about what's helpful for, for this person. Let me uh, conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore the punishment that by nature we actually are completely liable to. And in your just and perfect judgment, you know that we are deserving of wrath, but you sent Jesus to bear it in our place and you raised us up from that horrendous predicament. You've made us your children. You've bestowed upon us eternal blessing. We will enjoy you both now and forever. Father, may that motivate us again and again and again to throw away our stupid, futile, sinful tendencies and want to seek to live to please you in all that we think, say and do. May we never get complacent. May we never tire of hearing the old, old story. And Father, where there's uh, areas of self-deception that have become not so deceptive that we've started to realise this morning, please cut us to the heart by the Spirit and make us desire to be more like Jesus and give us the desire to look intently into that perfect law, into that gospel word, so that we might not deceive ourselves any longer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.